welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor John Banman. So we are continuing our series in Isaiah. Uh, we'll be in Isaiah 59. The title this morning is Salvation's Hero of Wrath. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Um, you know, I love heroic stories. I love those feel-good movies where things are just going completely all wrong and, and then the hero steps in and just saves the day. I especially love the ones that are based on a true story because it gives, that, it, gives it that much more oomph, like, okay, this really happened, and, and this, these people were on the edge, and then, and then something miraculous happened, and, and they won the day, and, and it's just awesome. I, I particularly like the, the sports versions of those stories, you know, like in, uh, Invincible, about this guy who, who uh, you know, didn't play college ball at all, played a little bit of football in the minor leagues, and kind of down and out in the late 70s in South Philly, and then uh, he walks on to a workout, open workout that, that the Eagles play, and he gets on the team, and he, and he makes the team, and, you know, spoiler alert, too late, sorry, but um, I love those kinds of stories, and, and, you know, for every one of those stories that are true stories, there are stories that don't end that way. There are stories where the hero doesn't step in, or or the miracle doesn't happen, and it's just a tragedy, you know, and, and, uh, and, and that's kind of how it is in, in real life often, is it not? And in this passage in Isaiah 59 this morning, you know, it, it's a reminder, I think, for, for those of us who are in the Lord, who have put our faith and hope and trust in Jesus, I think this chapter is a reminder to us that it doesn't win, end well for everybody. And it may not have ended well for us except for the grace and mercy of the Lord. And I think this morning it's, it's a good reminder. And if, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, I think this morning is especially for you in, in coming to grips with, you know what? Is there a hero in your life? Is there someone who can win the day for you? My mom uh, uh, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And, and, you know, I knew that that's a story that doesn't have a heroic ending. It, there's no silver bullet. There's no miracle cure for, for pancreatic cancer. It's a terminal disease. Um, it's actually pretty rapid cancer. Uh, but I remember going with my sister to, to my mom's uh, appointment with the oncologist to talk about what, how we're going to move forward. And, and I think there's still a part of me that kind of still feels like, yeah, but we're going to, like, we went downtown LA to UCLA's medical center, and this is like the top guy, you know. And you know, maybe there's some way that we're, you know, we'll, they'll be able to extend her life out beyond what she would have lived anyway. Or maybe there's some, you know, silver lining in this. And and uh, we met with the oncologist, and and the oncologist basically said, no, there is no, there's no silver lining here. There is no way out of this. It's that you're, you're really, your only choice is, you know, we do a massive surgery and chemotherapy, and then you spend a year or two recovering from that, and then you might have another year or two of, of relatively good years, and then, then the, it'll be the end. 
or you can just forego the surgery and the chemo and have one, maybe two years that are okay and, and then it'll be the end for you. And that was it, end of, end of appointment. So we came out of that appointment and my sister and I, we were with my mom and we we're sitting out in their kind of lounge area and my sister and I were just looking at my mom and, and, and thinking, okay, mom, this is your call. You know, whatever you, whichever way you wanna go with this, that we support you 100%. And my mom just kind of chatted for a little while, kind of, kind of clarified some of what the, the oncologist had said. And, and then at one point she just said, took a deep breath and she said, you know, I think I'd like to just have a, a year or two uh, of a good year and, and see my grandkids and, and have time with the family. And, and then, um, and then that'll be it. And, and that's what she decided. And, and we did have a year or two, actually probably, it was about a year and a half of, I recall correctly, it's kind of a blur, but, and, and then exactly what the oncologist said would happen, happen. And, and she just went down pretty quickly. Um, hospice did their best to, to mitigate her pain and then she perished. And that's how it goes in this world oftentimes, and, and um, we don't know, in fact, what we do know because of our sin nature, this body is doomed. Even for those of us who have been redeemed in the Lord, who have been known the salvation of the Lord, this, this body, this life, we are doomed. That's how this, this life winds up in terms of this, this flesh, this life and this flesh. And it's, it's a sobering thought. So on that sober note, let's, let's go to Isaiah 59. And it, just as a reminder, of course, the, the people of God, uh, Judea uh, is about to go into captivity because they've been rebelling against God continuously over and over and over again. And they know that they're about to go in captivity. Isaiah has been preaching for 58 chapters that they're going into captivity. And all the signs are clear that they're going into captivity. And there's a sense in which, okay, but we are God's people. You know, God is our hero. At what point is he going to step in and save the day and keep us from captivity? And this, that's where we are in this chapter. And it begins in verse 1. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. So it's not that God can't save them. It's not that God can heroically step in and save Judah from captivity into Babylon. But there's a problem. Verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. They have continuously over and over and over again denied God, rejected the Lord, rejected his word, served idols. And God is saying, you know what? This ongoing practice of sin, repetitive sin, has brought you to the point where I'm disciplining you. I'm judging you. I'm sending you into captivity. And for those who are being redeemed, it's a discipline, it's a wake-up call, it's a reminder, hey, you, we need to serve the Lord. And for those who are perishing, you're going to perish in captivity. You know, that, that is a sobering, scary thought, that we would perish for all of eternity. And that's what God is saying, is like, I, it's not that I can't save, but it's that you have repeatedly invested yourself 
in rebelling against me, and now I am going to discipline and judge you. Continuing in verse 3, and, and really from, from verse 3 all the way into verse 8, there's just a litany here that the Lord kind of brings a case against the people of Israel, against his own people to describe to them the depths and the depravity of their own sin. Verse 3, For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Notice the contrast there. God's hand is capable of saving them, but their hands are filled with blood and iniquity. Fingers with, with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. We don't normally say wickedness out loud, right? We tend to mutter it when we're frustrated, when we're angry, when we want people to just sort of halfway hear us, we mutter. Verse 4, for no one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They use the, the justice system, the, the system that God instituted through the Mosaic law, not to seek truth, not to seek justice, not, not to right wrongs that are done in their society, but rather as a tool to use for their own selfish interest, right? Which is, kind of plays off of what we learned last week in 58. Verse 5, they hatch adder's eggs. They weave, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. It's really interesting imagery here because a viper, particularly this type of viper, the way they gestate, they, they actually, a, a baby viper will gestate within an egg, but the egg stays within the mother. And when the egg breaks, the, the viper is released into the world, comes into the world. So it's actually a live birth, but the gestation happens within an egg. So the, 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 the choice is interesting here. It uses a viper adder's egg uh, to describe their sin because it's like the sin is, is so, so, so in, immediate. It's so present. It's like there's no delay between the, the laying of the egg and sin coming full, fully developed into the world, full of venom, the viper's venom. And, and, it, and to carry that idea... Further, it says, he who eats their eggs dies. So like if you get a chicken egg and you break open a chicken egg, you expect to see a yolk and white, uh, whiteness and, and have that for breakfast because the chicken will gestate in that egg if it's fertilized over a period of time. So to have a fresh egg, no problem. It's just a nice yolk and white. But an adder's egg, you break that open and you have a living, breathing viper in your pan full of ven venom that's going to bite you. So, so the, the prophet here is describing not only are all these are the people of God sinning, but those who are sinning with them, are complicit with them, are being bit by the same, same venom. Verse 6, their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. That idea of the web, the spider's web. Remember, you know that saying, um, what a tangled web we weave when first we strive to deceive. It's like all this deception, all this means of trying to have their own gain, go after their own thing, separated from God, in rebellion against God, and their, 
weaving webs of deceit and lies. And yet that, the web is just a fragile thing. You can walk right through a web with, with no problem. You can put your hand right through it. There's no strength in a web, right? And, and God is saying, you know, like all these deceits can't cover you. All these lies can't protect you. They're works of iniquity. Deeds of violence are in their hands. There's that reference to hands again. God's hand is strong and powerful to save, but their hand is filled with blood. Their fingers do iniquity. Their deeds of, of violence in their hands. Seven, their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. So they, they don't even wrestle with evil. They're not even struggling with evil. I mean, as believers who put our faith and trust in Christ, sometimes we struggle with sin and evil, and we're in that tug of war, that spiritual battle that Paul talks about. But these people have gotten to the point where the, they're not even fighting it anymore. They just run right at it, right? I mean, this is the description really of sliding to the point of, of, of potentially no return. This is, this is an apostate people. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Always thinking in a twisted, broken, wrong way. Constantly. Um, desolation and destruction are in their highways. Which should be a smooth, clear, straight path has become a place of havoc. A place of, of catastrophe and destruction. You can't even move because everything is just unraveling and falling apart. Makes you think of, we were talking, I was sharing with a couple after our live service this morning, and it, how much does that feel like our world today? You know, things are just seem to be unraveling everywhere we look. And there's desolation and there's destruction on the highways. Verse 8, the way of peace they do not know, and there's no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. I love that word peace there. It's the word shalom. And it, and it means more than just, you know, um, not having conflict. It means having a, a state of satisfaction and contentment where you're just at rest and, and you don't need anything. And, and all is right in the world and all is right in the family. There, no one's fighting. And you just uh, have that sense of well-being and contentment and all is taken care of. That's, that's the sense of this this word peace, the sense of shalom. But they have none. The way of peace, they, have, they, do, they don't even know it anymore. They don't even know what that feels like anymore. There's no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. I, I think of our modern saying of, you know, the people just left in the wake of someone who's just been so destructive. You think about maybe someone at work or or in the family, or, or in the community that you know of, and it just, you look at their lives and you just see this wake of destroyed lives trailing out behind them because they're so embedded, so deep within their own brokenness and sin that they're driving their own life into hell and they're destroying and damaging the lives around them. It's just this wake of destruction. 9 through 11 really speaks to, the, to sin in terms of how sin reaps what it sows. 9 says, Therefore, 
justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, we, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We growl like bears. We, we mourn and uh, we moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. So notice here how our own rebellion, our own rejection of the Lord, our own uh, stretching and breaking and twisting God's truth and justice turns back on us and we begin to reap the very same thing that we've sown and we become like blind men groping to find our way, trying to find a wall to guide us and support us because we've become so broken, so enmeshed in our breakdown. We hope for light, but it's just darkness. We, we, we long for brightness, but it's just become gloomy and sad and grieved. Verse 12 through 13 really shows how sin exposed, is exposed to God and screaming within us. 12 says, for our transgressions are multiplied before you. We don't sin in private. We don't reject the Lord in private. We do everything we do, including those things that we are most ashamed of. The, thing, the things that would just mortify us if, if, if it became publicly known. The, the things that we have hidden in the deepest regions of our mind. Those things were done in the clear, bright light of God's holiness before him. He knows it well. There's nothing hidden from him. Sin is fully exposed to God. And not only to God, but it, it testifies against us. 12 says, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Do you have areas of your life, do you have events in your life where you go, oh, I'm so ashamed of that time. I'm so, I'm so grieved that I did that. And if, if we leave that in a hidden place, if we, if we just try to stuff that down and pretend like it doesn't exist, then the enemy comes along and says, yeah, man, you, you're, you're horrible. You're hideous. You're awful. You should feel mortified about that. And he condemns us with his crooked finger pointing at us and condemns us. But Scripture says if we confess that sin to the Lord, if we bring it to the light... God already knows it, but we need to say it out loud to the Lord and say, Lord, I blew it here. I sinned against you. When David sinned against Bathsheba and against her husband by committing adultery with her and then having him, him killed on the front lines of battle, David's confession, he said, I, I have sinned against you, Lord. Our sins are against, are against the folks we sin against, but they're also and ultimately sins against him and his nature and his law. So if we just confess that to the Lord and say, Lord, I have sinned against you, Scripture says he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just in forgiving us for that. 13 says, uh, 
transgression, uh, well, continuing midway through 12, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. So there's no doubt here. Our sin is absolutely and entirely against the Lord. We have denied the Lord. We've turned our back from following Him. We speak oppression and revolt to His people, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. It has that same idea then of hatching uh, plans that are evil, right? That's who we are. That's who we are before we came to salvation. That's what we continue to struggle with and need to confess on a daily basis with the Lord, even as we have come to a place of salvation, a place of faith in the Lord through His grace. And if you have not come into that place today, this is where you are and this is where you're headed. And I want to encourage you, today is the day of salvation. Today is the opportunity for yourself to turn to the Lord. 14 through midway through 15 really speaks to the fact that sin is a pandemic. That sin is social. That when we sin and, and we revolt against the Lord, there's not only breakdown in our life, but there's breakdown in our community. 14 says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Does that not describe our world in this day? That the truth has stumbled in the public square. I think, I think the public square of our day is social media. And how much truth is spoken in social media? I think truth has completely stumbled in social media. I, I really want to encourage you. I want to encourage us as a church in Renaissance. Really be careful about your sources. Check your sources. There is so much out there right now that has no basis in fact. There are, there are principalities and powers at work in our community, in our country, that are set on our destruction. And they are using lies to cause us to stumble. And by the way, this is not code, okay? I'm not speaking against one political party or another. This is an issue on both sides of the aisle. This is an issue throughout the strata of our entire culture. And I am very concerned. Jesus, over and over, his biggest warning about the times of tribulation would be that there would be false teachers in the midst of tribulation. And that makes sense, right? Because as there is stress, as there is trouble, we get desperate and we want to find that silver bullet. We want to find that hero. We want to latch on to something that's going to be that immediate fix, something we can hope in. That, you know, there is no president who is going to ultimately be able to save us. Whether it's Joe Biden or, or Trump, you know, their presidencies are going to come and they're going to go, okay? And at the end of the day, we need to look for something greater than a president of, of the United States or, or a, a, a leader of the free world or a leader at the UN, okay? That, they, we are all doomed. <laughs> that system, that world system is doomed. And I want to I encourage you, hey, engage in the city square, but watch yourself, check your sources, 
make sure that what you're, you're thinking about and acting on is really based on truth and not uh, evil intent and distortion, all the things that have Isaiah has already described in these, in, these, in these verses. 15 says, truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. It's gotten so bad in Judea that the one who does stand up, the one who pushes back on that evil, becomes prey. He becomes persecuted. I mean, try standing up for some, some truth, whatever it is, in social media and see what happens. I mean, if you have you know, three followers and two of them are your parents, <laughs> probably not much. But if you've got any kind of following on social media and you speak up for what's true, and I pray that it's true and not just the latest rage of your particular tribe, but you speak up for what's true, see how much you become a pariah, how much you are preyed upon. Halfway through 15, it says, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Think about that. God is most grieved when there is no justice. When we take truth and distort it and twist it into lies. When we use the justice system not to make right what is wrong, but to just serve our own selfish interests, right? That cuts to the heart of God. That is what he grieves over the most. When we just trample over his law, his provision for his, his guidance, the guardrails he's given us so that we could have shalom, so that we could have peace, and we just blow right through those things, it grieves him deeply. Verse 16 says, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. This is like, the saddest moment, right? God looks at all of this and there's no one there to stand up. There's no hero. There's no one to save the day. It reminds me of the story of, of uh, Sodom in Genesis and the, the, the angel of the Lord and, and another angel are headed to Sodom to judge in wrath the city of Sodom. And they come across, uh, they pass by, I don't think by coincidence, they pass by Abraham's a little area, tent, and, and Abraham sees them and comes out to them and begins to talk to them and wants to know what they're doing. And they're telling him, well, we're going to Sodom and, Sodom and we're going to uh, judge it. And Abraham says, well, and he begins this sort of game with them. He says, well, what if I found 50 righteous men in the city? Would you still judge it? And they said, no, we wouldn't. Well, what about 40? What about 30? What about 20? And he goes all the way through this long, elaborate, and he gets down to 10. What if I found 10? And the angel of the Lord says, no, if you found 10... Uh, we wouldn't judge it. But of course what happens is they go to Sodom, Sodom and they judge the city because they can't find even 10 in the city who are righteous, right? And God is looking at this. He's looking at his own people and saying, I can't find one. And you're all going into captivity. You're all going under judgment and under correction and under discipline. For some, correction unto salvation and for some judgment unto death. That's where they're headed. That's where they're going. This really kind of reminds me also of uh, Revelation chapter 5. Turn in your Bibles there real quick. In the first few verses it says, and, and, and to just kind of set this up, this is a scene that John sees in his vision of the heavenly throne room. 
and God is sitting there on his throne in all of his glory. And it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And catch this. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. It's like, ah, oh, this is the moment. This is the grand moment when, this, when the hero steps in to save the day and there is no one. And look at John's response. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John just breaks down because the scroll represents God's completion of history, God's consummation of all of his promises, his final and last judgment, and his ultimate and great salvation where we are saved into the new heavens and the new earth with brand new eternal bodies that will live forever. forever, forever. This is the great moment and yet no one is found and John is just devastated and he's broken. If we go back to Isaiah 59, 16, we're at that moment in this chapter. No one can be, sound, be found. And then it's bit, but 16 continues, praise the Lord. And it says, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Okay, his own arm brought him salvation. Who's, who's his and him? What, what's going on here? This is a reflection of, of the Trinity of God, the Godhead, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, it almost seems like God is speaking in this kind of schizophrenic kind of way. It's like, well, who's him? And, you know, are you talking to yourself? What's going on here? And this is God the Father speaking to God the Son, the Messiah, the messianic figure that Isaiah has already been developing in, in so many chapters that we've, that we've read already. And, it, and you know, this, this led off saying God's hand is powerful enough to say, save. And now he's saying my arm, I'm bringing my whole arm in the form of my servant, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, to, to bring salvation and his righteousness upheld him. That's, that's really a picture. If you look at Jesus and his public ministry, how Jesus was, was buttressed and held and supported in the righteousness and the presence of God. His disciples at one point said to Jesus, you know, we, we need to eat something. And Jesus said, I, I, I have my own food. I have, I have the food of, of communion with the Father and doing his will. That's, that's my food. That's my provision, my sustenance. Um continues this this image this messianic image uh, and and even well yeah let's continue 17 he put on righteousness as a breastplate he being Christ put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head Christ came with righteousness in his heart and with his mind set on salvation um, he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrap himself in zeal as a cloak. We see a hint of this when Jesus came into the temple and, and in, the, in the courtyard where, where the outer court where even unbelievers and Gentiles could come 
into the outer court and and worship the one true God had been turned into a marketplace where people were changing money and buying and selling animals to sacrifice. And it just, again, that same righteous anger burned in Jesus. And he made up a whip of cords and just whipped all these guys out of the court and overturned their money tables. And and, and the, the Gospels quote the, the disciples as remembering that, that Old Testament passage that says, you know, the zeal of the Lord would would fill Christ. And this is kind of, we get a hint of that in Christ's first coming. We will see and get the full scope of that on his second coming. Jesus came the first time as a humble servant to save us from our sins, to redeem us. He is coming again to consummate that salvation for those of us who have turned to him and to bring final judgment and wrath on those who have not. And those, that day is the day of days, and, and eternity follows. It is a simultaneous event. Either salvation into the kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, or judgment and wrath into hell for all of eternity is what, what waits all of humanity. That is what we're headed. And if we do not know Christ or have or if we had not known Christ, the eternity we faced was hell for all of eternity. Life apart ultimately and absolutely from from God. From all that is good, all that is light, all that is joy, all that is shalom, peace, contentment. 18. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render payment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. When Jesus returns, it's not going to be this quiet, in the background uh, event that you you have to worry about missing. It's going to be a world-shattering, massive event that nobody misses, okay? Uh, in Jesus' sermon on the, on the, it's called the Olivet Discourse, he says, like, when you, as the lightning flashes from the east to the west, so shall be my coming. So, and again, he warns his disciples, hey, when people say, hey, Jesus is over here. No, Jesus is over here. Hey, come into this room, this little secret. There's a secret organization that really has a true line on who Jesus is. That is deception. That is what Jesus promises in the midst of tribulation, that there would be uh, false prophets, false Christ, the spirit of Antichrist. So we need to guard against that. When Jesus returns, it will be obvious to everybody. It will be a major worldwide event. 20 says, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. So this is the key pivot point. This is, this is the moment in the movie when, when the hero saves the day. Jesus is the hero who will repay you for your sins, or he is the hero who, who paid for your sin, Right? Jesus is the hero that is ultimately going to judge you in wrath and vengeance. 
or he is the hero that is going to consummate the salvation that he has extended to you when he died on the cross, went into the grave, and resurrected on the third day, ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of his Father, and rules with all authority and all power. This is the hero. This is our Savior or judge, depending on where you stand and depending on whether or not you are willing to bend the knee, to confess his name, to confess to him your own sin, your own breakdown, and call upon him for his grace and his mercy and his salvation. And Paul says, look, if we confess with our lips and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, he will save us. I pray that you've made that confession, and if you haven't, that you will make that confession even now. Even as we continue this time of worship and study, I pray that you will make that confession. It's amazing to me how 2,000 years ago, the same message continues to be preached from one generation to the next. And again, I think that demonstrates the power of, of God. This last verse really speaks to that. God says, and as for me... This is my covenant with them, meaning really the disciples of Christ. This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, meaning Jesus, the Messiah, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth. Jesus said over and over again, I I don't speak my own words. I say what what the Father tells me to say. I'm speaking my Father's words. Those same, that same spirit that, that God put on Jesus and, that, and the same words that he put in Jesus' mouth shall not, depart, um, shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So for all of those who have put their hope and faith in the living God, for all those all those in Judea who are going into captivity in Babylon, who've put their faith and have turned to the Lord, the Lord's power and his truth will be with them always. Jesus said, lo, I'm with you even into the end of the age. Right? All the way down to us today, the disciples of Christ, generation after generation, Christ, God the Father continues to put his Holy Spirit on us and to put the words of his truth into our mouth, to put that shalom into our hearts as we look forward to that great day of salvation. I read to you Revelation chapter 5, just the beginning. I, I want to finish a, uh, some of that chapter, not all of it, but a few more verses. Going back to Revelation verse 5, remember, I mean, uh, yeah, just before verse 5, John is just weeping and broken because no one can be found to open the scroll. Verse 5 says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the mighty warrior, the savior, the king of kings, the great hero, the hero of heroes, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now, it's interesting. This is great news. And, and then the next verse says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who's seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. And they just erupt into this enormous heavenly praise worship. But notice the Lion of Judah, the strong Savior who comes to judge and wrath the world, is also the Lamb of God, appearing as if slain, standing amongst the elders. He is standing with his church, amongst his church, having been slain for our sake, that we might be redeemed into his kingdom. So which is it for us this morning? Which is it for you this morning? As you wrestle and struggle with your sin, do you turn to the Lord, confessing it, allowing Him by faith to restore you and wash you clean of all unrighteousness? Or are you hanging on to your sin and pursuing it deeper and deeper and deeper and pushing God further and further away? You are at risk of never coming to salvation. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Don't wait another moment. Today is the day of your salvation. Confess your sin. Receive the great grace of the, of the Lamb that was slain for your sake. Or face the wrath of the Lion of Judah. That is what we face today. When my mom... Uh, my mom did have, as I shared, you know, almost a year of, of really being able to enjoy her family and her grandkids, and, and, but she got close to the end, and, and um, my wife and I, Donna and I, were visiting her at her little apartment. She had this little apartment, and it was a assisted living, a full hospice care and everything, and, and at this point, she was pretty far gone, pretty out of it, a lot of heavy drugs, so she wasn't real responsive, and she was just kind of in her bed with the sheets pulled up over her head and under the covers and, and not real responsive. And, and one of her uh, really good close friends who uh, had taught music with her, my mom was a music teacher and choir director, all the rest of it, and she was there, and we were just uh, talking together, and, and um, I could tell my mom's friend, she knew this kind of was her last time with my mom, and she was trying to engage with my mom, but my mom was just completely unresponsive. And so at one point, she suggested, how about we sing some hymns? So we broke out some hymns, hymnals that my mom had there in her apartment, and we started singing all these great hymns of the faith, you know. And, and I kept thinking, well, one of these classic hymns might kind of wake her up, or we might see some response from her. And, and there was none all the way through all these, you know, all the big name hymns, you know, Mighty Fortress is My God. And, but we kept singing them through them. And then at the very end, we sang, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And, and all of a sudden, my mom just, my mom stirred, and she, um, her hand came out from underneath the sheet, and she reached out, she grabbed hold of Carol, her friend's hand, and gripped it really, really tight as we sang that song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And, it, and it's such a simple song, and faith is such a simple thing. Jesus loves me, this I know. And to take your hand that may be full of sin and understand that Jesus bled for you. 
Jesus took the nails in his hand for your sake, in your place, and to reach out and grab hold of his hand, knowing that he loves you, that is the opportunity for this morning. And, and you may be a believer, you may already be close to the Lord and know him, but I want to encourage you, you know what? He's there for us every day. As I said, Jesus said it low. I'm with you even to the end of the age. I want to encourage you this morning to reach out to him, take hold of his hand, confessing whatever is there in your life, whatever shadow of doubt, whatever grief, whatever failure that has kind of gotten between you and the Lord. I pray, God, that, I pray that you would confess that to the Lord even now in this time as we begin to enter into a time of worship with you. Lord, I, I pray, God, that you would your Holy Spirit would be honest and speak to our hearts, God, that we might reach out to you, that confess our sins to you very honestly and very directly, God, that we would experience the reconciliation, the restoration of, of our fellowship with you, God. And for those who may be reaching out for the first time, turning to you for the first time, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict and convince them of your salvation, that they have been made right, they've been washed completely clean by your great love. Lord Jesus, I just, I just thank you so much, God, for, for your blessing in our lives. God, I thank you that you are our hero. Lord Jesus, I thank you, Father, that you have made it clear to us that there is a day of wrath coming. And that today is the day of our salvation. We have an opportunity to repent. We have an opportunity to restore fellowship. We have an opportunity to come into your grace for the first time. We have an opportunity to, to restore connection with you for the hundred thousandth time, Lord. Father, we look forward to that great day. That great day of salvation and wrath. The great day where we enter into the eternal kingdom fully repaired, fully restored, complete in every way, absolutely in your presence, as near as we could ever be to you, Lord. God, save those who are perishing, that they might know your great love and your grace. In your son's holy name. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.